Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Hey, welcome, everyone. It's a great pleasure to, uh, today to have Dr. Melissa Curley to come here and give us a talk. Um, Melissa, as we know, is a senior lecturer uh, in IR at Post, it's at UQ. She's also the, the director of the Rotary uh, Peace Center, which is also housed by the same school. She used to work um, at the Center of Asian Studies at the University of Hong Kong um, before coming back to uh, uh, Australia. Her research interests include Southeast Asian politics and international relations and law, Cambodian politics and non-traditional security in East Asia. Um, and she has published widely uh, on these issues on major uh, journals such as Migration and Security in Asia, uh, sorry, um, in journals like um, Journal of uh, Law and Security Review of uh, International Studies. She's currently working on a book manuscript on civil society and uh, liberal, democ uh, liberal democracy in Cambodia, which might be re related to the talk today. Uh, it also worth mentioning that she uh, gave her service to a wider social enterprise as a member of the executive advisor um, board of the Brave Hearts Inc., which is a non-profit organization that works to prevent and protect Australian children from sexual assault. And she's awarded the uh, Paul Harris Fellow in 2016 for her uh, service to the Rotary <coughs> Foundation. So, Melissa, welcome to Griffith, and thank you to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Steve, for that very kind introduction. Um, it's really great to be with you today, and I'd, I'd just like to thank Steve and the Griffith Asia Institute for inviting me to speak. Um, it's good to be here again. Uh, I've, I've come over when I can to, to listen in to seminars here and just to present some of my recent research and also some ideas for a book manuscript I'm working on. And it's also especially nice to be here because the article from which I'm drawing some of the presentation today was part of a special edition that I, that I uh, co-edited with Steve McCarthy and Bjorn Dressel from ANU. Um, on the evolving concept of the rule of law in, in Southeast Asia and ASEAN. So I think it's, uh, it's a nice venue for, to present some of these discussions as drawing from that, that, um, that uh, collaboration that Steve and I have had. So as you can see today, I'm, I'm talking on the topic of governance and civil society in Cambodia, and especially on the introduction of uh, the NGO law and implications of the NGO law, law passed in 2015 and what it means for... Uh, democracy and civil society in Cambodia. And secondly, I think it also adds, what I want to do is add to the um, ongoing discussion in recent years of Cambodia's decline or movement away from democracy to a more authoritarian-like regime features. So, I mean, people obviously use different um, language in which to discuss that. Um, uh, so what, what, what I want to really focus on is what has been the passing... Uh, what has been the, uh, the implications of the passing of this NGO law and what, how have, in the early stages, how have we seen it implemented? Uh, and what does it say about uh, the state of the rule of law in Cambodia? So I hope to really answer centrally those questions. Um, I'd also like to share with you some further research questions that I'm working on now in a monograph on civil society in Cambodia um, towards the latter part of the presentation. And this book really takes Cambodia as a, a case study to observe civil society responses under declining democratic space. 
So I think there is a clear uh, consensus in the, in the literature and within uh, area studies and political science on that Cambodia has indeed regressed into electoral authoritarianism. Um, colleagues around the table have worked on that, um, uh, Lucy and Lee amongst others. So I think um, whether or not people express that in the, in the, you know, along the, in the category of in those kind of terminologies or rather in other uh, terminologies relating to democratic quality, using various criteria. So I just want to clarify that I'm not questioning that consensus today or in this book, but rather I'm interested in, in uh, developing the debate further by asking how do civil society actors respond and continue their work under declining and more authoritarian-like political structures. So it's more internally, this, the wider the book will be more internally focused on the relationship between civil society groups, the state, donors, in some respects, and the mechanisms through which these actors negotiate their relationship with the state and evolve strategies to meet new political conditions. So how do we, what's going on in that space? And so I hope also to uh, speak to uh, the, the, uh, the literature on electoral authoritarianism in that way. Some of the questions that I raised today, but but perhaps we'll also deal with more thoroughly in the, in the book would be what strategies do NGOs and civil society organisations undertake to continue their work? Can norm advocacy be, still be advanced under these conditions? Are, are some norms easier to advance because they're considered less political? Um, what are the political implications of some of these new practices for donors, implementing partners and policy development? Uh, so I'll say something um, further about that. Okay, so let me see if I can move on. So just a couple of points about the context of the research. Um, as I said, it comes from a special edition in Asian Studies Review on the Rule of Law in Southeast Asia. Um, just a couple of points. In, the, in this special edition, what we, what we wanted to do was um, to really problematise the use and the rhetorical use of the concept of the rule of law in Southeast Asia, in implementation, and also in, in ASEAN. So we, we explore the emergent relationship between the rhetorical use, or vernacularisation, if you like, and the actual implementation in practice of some of the uh, practices of the rule of law concept in Southeast Asia. And what we hope to do in the special edition was to highlight how some ideals that arguably are drawing from the um, critical law literature and, and critical uh, literature and political science on the rule of law, that arguably some ideals that are central to the tradition of the rule of law, like, uh, like uh, the use of uh, law curbing the arbitrary use of power, um, we're suggesting that that is being uh, excised, marginalised, defended or undermined in Southeast Asia. So what, in what ways do we see the rule of law uh, uh, used rhetorically as a concept and, and what, in what ways can we see that uh, uh, developed in practice amongst um, in documents in ASEAN, uh, for example, and also in political practice in countries. So what, we, what I think we've, we hopefully achieved is to show that the concept is deeply contested in and through state power in the region, uh, uh, through state power elites, but also in the voices of other non-state actors. We tried to illustrate this and explore it through four country case studies of Thailand, Burma, Cambodia and Vietnam, plus also an article on ASEAN by Kelly Girard uh, and a, an introduction, a, a sort of a, a conceptual uh, article introduction that, that we co-authored. So uh, that's the context in which my article on um, the 
uh, the NGO law in Cambodia is sort of is situated. And um, so what, what I do in this paper overall is really to try and have a look at why it was that the government felt it needed to enact uh, a law on uh, managing and uh, uh, controlling, if you like, uh, uh, non-governmental organisations and civil society in general. So it's, it really is a, it, it, it does a textual analysis of the actual legislation itself and, and looks at um, some of the, the pre and post uh, uh, debate around the law and then talks about how it actually articulates with other le legislation which other scholars who have been working on uh, politics in Cambodia have for some time talked about the development of, of a, rule, uh, a rule by law, not a rule of law. So I try to engage with that debate and add to that debate. Uh, and then towards the end of the article, I talk about some commentary and implement, Im, implications. And as I've mentioned, um, I've already mentioned that I try to raise questions about how these civil society organisations are evolving, you know, they're not just static and, and uh, staying put, there is a lot of movement and discussion and debate about how they respond to that, so that's the kind of, you know, area that I'm trying to, um, to some extent I, I think I achieve in this article, but, but I hope to achieve more in the book. Alright, so just to speak to... Um, Perhaps, I think, some of the major features of, of the article. Uh, what it does is it looks at the, the background and the debate um, before 2015 uh, when the government actually passed the law. And as many of you know, um, laws in, in East Asian states to govern the activities of civil society actors are not uncommon. And um, if there are not laws in place that specifically refer to civil society actors, other legislation certainly can play a role in the compliance and monitoring and regulation of groups considered part of civil society. So, for example, finance, you know, finance in the finance realm and non-profit regulations, for example, can be can be used to uh, monitor uh, civil society. But regulations around the region vary uh, depending on regime type. And for years, despite talking about the need for an NGO law, successive Cambodian governments did not move on it really until after the 2013 elections, uh, when the Cambodian People's Party experienced greater than expected losses. So I don't have time to go into a long history of Cambodia here, but I think as many of you would know, um, it's, Cambodia's democratic space and the space for civil society really exploded in the wake of the UNTAC mission in the early 90s to, that was um, uh, tasked with re-establishing democratic elections and with it a huge influx of international donor money, uh, aid workers uh, to participate in the democratisation and rebuilding of Cambodia and as, as many of you will know, a country that has gone through uh, a lot of uh, violence and tragedy with genocide in the past amongst other factors. Uh, so I don't want to recount the period or, you know, the debates around transitional justice and reconciliation, and there's a lot of debates in the literature about the liberal peace agenda because it's, you know, in the interest of time. However, I just wanted to say that this, certainly it is the case that the influx and the, um, the money that was directed towards and the faith in civil society uh, at this point resu uh, resulted in an enormous increase in the freedom and breadth and the scope of activity of civil society in Cambodia. On, and that was that um, was overlaid by traditional forms uh, that were that were existing um, religious groups um, and other sort of village groups. So uh, there's a lot 
more to say about um, about that in depth, but I just wanted to point out that and caveat the fact that I recognise that Cambodia is characterised by a complex array of formal and informal NGOs, community-based groups, Buddhist organisations, farmer and commune groups, and these have various international linkage, linkages to NGO, in, international donors, and other even overseas private philanthropists. So it's a very complex space which um, which we're talking about. Uh, but nevertheless, the, because of, I think partly because of this and because of the freedom, the movement to pass an NGO law was always going to be very contentious among, amongst the domestic and international community because, um, because of the, uh, the freedom and scope, I think, that they had in, that, in those years that has developed. Okay, so um, what, I'll do, what I'll just do now is... Briefly, briefly walk you through the legislation itself. If you do have a copy of my paper, you can. It's sort of written out there. Um, I think it's quite useful to just see how uh, a government does pass particular laws in order to uh, to uh, you know increase the monitoring and control over um, civil society groups. So the NGO law itself is a ten-page piece of legislation. It has nine chapters and. 39 constituent articles. So what I do is go through the actual physical kind of um, de definitions and uh, delineations in the legislation. And one of the significant things that it does do, as you can see the little graph I've got there, is that it, it clearly uh, it has definitions in the legislation about different forms of organisations that are regulated between domestic, uh, domestic organisations and foreign NGOs. And depending on which uh, categorisation the organisation falls under, then it, it is subject to different regulatory requirements, with, uh, which I've outlined on page 255, and, which, and they correspond to which articles. Uh, so um, if, if you're a domestic, domestic organisation, that is further then delineated between domestic associations and domestic NGOs. And typically, I think that unions would be put in the domestic association category, and the domestic NGO category would be uh, those that are um, run and managed by uh, Cambodian nationals. Foreign NGOs have uh, typically would be NGOs that you would that are um, uh, international, international, funded internationally. So you can see on page 225 what I go through is the different regulatory requirements of uh, the NGO law, and what. Even though, um, even though there were some basic requirements prior to this in Cambodia, that what this law does, it, it increases substantially the power of the Ministry of Interior uh, to gather or, or the, the need for organisations to comply with the, with the legislation. So, for example, um, by providing um, information on founding members, providing photographs, details of, of offices, a statute, um, the, uh, the purpose of the organisation, uh, financial disclosure articles around uh, bank accounts. Uh, so there's a whole, I won't go into it in great detail. I'm going to talk a little bit more about some of the clauses in a minute. Uh, but um, just in a, in a sort of a, um, in a uh, I suppose, a collection of information uh, point of view, what the legislation does is substantially increase the reporting and registration requirements of, of organisations to uh, register with the Ministry of Interior. 
And I am going to talk a little bit more about some of the reasons why that might be a good idea as well. Um, in the interest of time, I mean, I do go into, in the article, I do go through some of the debate uh, prior to the passing of it. It was actually, there was, I think, about five drafts, and there was actually, I think, a lot of years where the, the idea of the NGO law was well socialised. So once when it was actually passed, it wasn't much of a surprise <coughs> to people. They knew what was coming. And uh, in many ways, uh, there, there wasn't a great deal of change in subsequent, um, uh, subsequent drafts. When it was passed in 2015, however, just to, I think, summarise and uh, captures a lot of the um, concern of the international community was the UN High Commissioners uh, for Human Rights comment that the law uh, breached the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights, which was recognised in the Cambodian Constitution uh, because of the way in which it was limiting uh, in NGOs or uh, well, civil society actors in, in different ways, which I'll talk about. Um, so, uh, justification-wise, I think, uh, inter interestingly, uh, uh, the, the ruling party made a, lot of, made a number of comments about why they needed an NGO <coughs> law, particularly in relation to a concern about uh, funding of terrorist organisations and the, and the channelling of uh, money laundering and potential um, illegal uh, money coming into... Uh, organisations in Cambodia that didn't have bona fide uh, reasons to um, be acting and what were they doing with those funds. Uh, interestingly, however, um, the Secretary of State, um, the Secretary for the uh, Ministry of Interior did make a comment that the NGO law was necessary due to the sheer number of NGOs operating in Cambodia, over 5,000, and some of which he suggested were acting beyond their mandate. And I'll just flick forward to the next slide that I want to uh, talk about. I might come back to the previous one. But I, did, I wanted to, to point out that there is some, you know, there is some uh, truth or empirical evidence to suggest that, you know, there, for some time, over the development of those two decades, the, the breadth and depth of the civil society did, uh, at times, uh, you know, perhaps uh, move into areas beyond where the state perhaps should have been acting or certainly where the, the government needed to, uh, to introduce more regulatory control. The example I have up here is um, the, that, that graphic is a picture of a UNICEF campaign about um, the rise of uh, uh, fake orphanages in Cambodia, and this is an interesting example. Uh, the rise of orphanage tourism um, came about uh, because uh, many tourists coming to Cambodia were interested in you know, uh, doing good and, and visiting maybe doing some you know, good philanthropic um, work, maybe providing a donation. And uh, what we actually found was that um, uh, perhaps entrepreneurial uh, Cambodians found that uh, orphanages themselves could become a tourist attraction. And uh, uh, according to a UNICEF survey that was done last year with, uh, with the government, uh, between 2015 and, uh, 2005 and 2015, the number of orf orphans in these fake orphanages uh, rose by uh, 60%. Oh, sorry, the orphanages, the, the organisations increased by 60%. And 80% of those children, some 16,500 children living in, in these uh, uh, unregulated institutions, actually the majority, 80% of them, had one living parent. 
so they essentially became a business, businesses for um, providing some level of care and some level of education. Uh, but they weren't real. But many of these children were not orphans, and the growth in orphanages, which is what I'm getting to, was actually completely at odds with the declining poverty rate and the falling number of genuine orphans uh, over the same decade. So what this kind of uh, issue area is really a perverse outcome of a number of multifactorial issues. One of them is the outward migration of parents uh, to other countries in the region. Uh, Thailand in particular, seeking work, leaving their children with, uh, with a grandparent or, or potentially that grandparent then uh, being offered the opportunity of their children to come to a, a, an orphanage in Phnom Penh. Uh, rapid increase in tourist arrivals and the tapping into the desire of tourists to participate in a, in a you know, to do good in a developing com uh, country. And Cambodian um, uh, operators perhaps saw this as a business. And so this is one area where um, UNICEF is one actor that is, tr is working with the government to try and increase regulatory control and where uh, in uh, regu regulatory control around institutional care is something certainly that um, we could say is desirable. So the claim that charities and NGOs um, operating off-piste and beyond their mandate is, uh, is not without empirical evidence. I just wanted to point that out and that's something that um, I've looked at in other um, areas of child exploitation as well. Um, so let me just go back to, uh, to the point about um, the debate post for 2015. Um, in the article I do talk about and summarise, uh, did quite an extensive uh, review of media responses and international human rights groups' responses and they were all uh, you know, very, very concerned about the passing of the NGO law and what, what, um, what uh, impact it was going to have, and also frequently referencing uh, the the uh, the way in which the law uh, was going to hinder uh, the rights of organisations and the rights of citizens uh, to, you know, for example. Uh, to get together to um, their free speech, uh, right of association um, and right to participate in activities that are subsequently criminalised, which I'm going to talk about. Uh, application to date. How am I going for time, Steve? Fifteen minutes. Okay, so... <coughs> uh, application to date... Um, there hasn't... I think in terms of a legal application of the law and prosecutions, there hasn't been, from what I can find thus far, uh, a significant um, use of the law in that, in that regard. But what we have seen is some high-profile uh, developments. The closure of the, uh, the US-funded National Democratic Institute uh, in 2017 is one uh, that uh, is well uh, noted in, in the media. Uh, and that, when it was closed down, it was they also the government also referred to um, uh, the 2000, not, uh, the 1997 tax law, uh, and this is a feature that we see is the NGO law being uh, increasingly referred to and um, used in relation to other legislation. In October 2017, uh, a land rights group, Equitable Cambodia, was suspended. Um, but what we can see from um, the uh, media reports and international human rights monitoring which um, tries to tap into sources in country 
is that trade unions, uh, labour protection uh, activists uh, and land rights activists are, are the ones who are being most targeted by surveillance, intimidation, arbitrary arrests, uh, in some cases prosecution, uh, potentially on other offences, uh, and pre a lengthy pre-trial detention. Uh, so, so we have seen uh, use of the law, uh, but certainly there needs to be further research on that and it is, I guess, one of the limitations of my article to date as it was published is that it didn't really, I think, tap into you know, what's going on in the rural areas just because of the limitations of funding and, and uh, the ethics review that I had. Uh, an interesting point about um, the regulations is that the... Uh, they have had an impact on local authorities because um, what you'll find as I um, talk a little bit more too about the, the neutral, other clauses around neutrality and national security is that they have, they're very vague and they have been difficult for local authorities to interpret. And so um, there have been frequent reports about uh, local authorities misreading or misinterpreting the spirit of the law as they have understood it. Uh, and so what this has re resulted in is demands for NGOs um, uh, to make sure they give permission for any activities prior, you know, that are conducted and or even shutting, shutting down activities uh, or police monitoring their, um, their meetings or activities. So, so the, the vague nature of the law is also a factor in the way it's been, um, it's in the way it's implementing it, it's been implemented and affecting uh, uh, <coughs> activities in the community, if you like. Um, I'll say something about the impact in my conclusion as well. Okay. okay. So what I, what I try to do in the, in the last part of the paper is talk a little bit about the implement, uh, implications and some commentary around the future of the, the, um, the law. One of the most uh, controversial issues of, of the law was the way in which uh, it, it um, draws upon uh, the requirements of organisations to be neutral, politically neutral, and not uh, neutral towards any political, to any political party. Considering the opposition has now been disbanded, what that effectively means is that activities in the neutrality clause cannot be seen to be, um, uh, I suppose, uh, favouring or, cri sorry, criticising the ruling party in any way, and that's the way in which it can be interpreted. Um, but before I say something about that, I'll just talk about compliance with the regulations. So on, in terms of a, on an administrative front, uh, if, you, if you imagine a small NGO, a grassroots NGO that is having um, some activities, it needs not only to go through the compliance and, and regulations of registering and so forth, but um, if it would need to, uh, if those activities are in English or involving foreign visitors or those activities would need to be translated into Khmer and then passed on to the local government or to in Phnom Penh into the local Ministry of Interior. So some of the just the basic um, practicalities of compliance are time-consuming and challenging for small, smaller NGOs, not large, not or civil society groups. 
So there's, um, there's one example. Uh, the, I've mentioned the vagueness of, of requirements, and any of those of you who will, uh, are legally trained will be familiar with the, uh, the, uh, the need of, of law, ideally, to be very specific and, and allow citizens to know uh, and to understand um, how they can be com in compliance with the law. So the vagueness of some of the requirements are confusing. I'd just like to, to point out uh, a couple of the more controversial um, uh, clauses around neutrality, national security, cultural cohesion and stability. So in the neutrality clause, um, which uh, you can, you can ha if you were to look at it, it's in Article 24 and 26, it says that organisations shall maintain their neutrality towards political parties in the, king in the kingdom. So this, you know, it has the opportunity to really be interpreted in a, in a very wide scope and, and also uh, prosecutorial discretion uh, could be very wide there. Uh, national security, cultural cohesiveness and stability are terms that you see also in various articles around the way in which organisations uh, should, uh, in their activities, um, should not, for example, uh, in the removal criteria, organisations can be removed or, and deregistered um, for activities that endanger the security, stability and public order or jeopardise the national security, culture, tradition and custom of Cambodian national society, regardless of other criminal punishments. So, you know, it, it, the question then is around how do we interpret um, jeopardising something like the custom of Cambodian national society. The, the scope of um, interpretation is very broad. Uh, the terrorism provisions also uh, link NGO activities or civil society activities explicitly to the existing criminal law. So it may, it's not only, um, uh, it, it's, it's also um, a feature of um, how the legislation articulates to other laws that they may be um, the scope of criminal activity you know can relate to other laws so uh, under the terrorism uh, provisions any association or NGO organization conducting activities which endanger the na national security or involve money laundering terrorist financing or terrorist crimes or other criminal offense shall be punished according to the existing criminal law of the Ca kingdom of Cambodia so um, it's also, the, the legislation is also a way of articulating uh, further with um, those, those different uh, legal frameworks. Um, so I think additional research really is required. As I said, a limitation of my article, I feel, is that it, it doesn't really capture what's going on in the rural uh, provinces. How is it impacting uh, on uh, in administrative compliance uh, kind of um, way? the time-consuming nature of it. It may be impacting more on local organisations and smaller organisations than we are, we are aware of, or perhaps they're just not complying. And if they're not, if they're not, um, if no action is taken from the government, perhaps they're not doing anything. So I think there's really, um, certainly I, I'm uh, not aware of um, scholarly research yet on that, but certainly that's some area <coughs> which I think we need to monitor. Um, the Interior Minister recently has repealed a... A re, uh, an administrative guideline that required NGOs to report their activities three days prior to do, undertaking them. So this repeal does suggest to me that um, 
either there has either that that um, that administrative guideline had been disrupting the activities that the government actually is in favour of, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. So I don't know uh, I don't know the background to that, but I think that is an interesting development. Okay, so um, just before I conclude, I, I wanted to um, introduce to you, I guess, some of the direction of my current work. And in second semester this year, I'm, I'm going to be taking up a research fellowship at the Institute of Advanced Humanities at UQ and be um, liberated from, from teaching for one semester to try and focus on finishing this pro or certainly making a, a, a good start on this project. Um, and what, I've, what I'm finding, what I have found thus far with some of the fieldwork I've done and drawing upon work like this in, in this article, is that what we're seeing is, diff is, uh, is different modes of interaction uh, with civil society in the state. And this is, it, this is evolving under uh, declining democratic uh, conditions. So what, what kind of um, uh, models am I finding? One of them is um, what I'm sort of calling partnership and evolution. Uh, this, is a, this is an example here of um, Action Pour Les Enfants, which is uh, an NGO which started out probably 20 years ago in the early, early years of ONTAC as a, a child protection uh, NGO that looked at um, troubling international sex offenders and which you know, were, were very <coughs> was quite prevalent in Cambodia and still are to some extent. This, this NGO works very cooperatively. It has a model of working with the police, uh, trying to improve uh, police knowledge around child protection. Uh, it works in the community. It works very much in partnership with the state, with the idea that there's no, I think, my sense of it is that there's no alternative but to work collaboratively with the state if they want to progress this child protection agenda that they have. And so, you know that that is one kind of model that we can that I'm seeing, and that I think we can see in other in other areas. Another interesting kind of um, mode, if you like, is the, the partnerships that we see with international organisations such as UNICEF, who partner with local organisations. And here we see partnership as well, but there's also advocacy, uh, soft soft and maybe some hard advocacy with the state. Uh, where, where those organisations are jointly implementing areas of policy of mutual concern. So, for example, UNICEF is, is helping, um, working with uh, the various relevant ministries to implement the National Action Plan on, um, to Preventing Violence Against Women and Children uh, with local partners. And, you know, this does advance norms of child rights, of... Um, uh, of um, women's rights uh, and a whole range of other perhaps norms that we could we could see in the you know internationally um, and what I'm what I'm looking at here is trying to understand the ways that those not just the local partners but international organisations push their agenda with the state how do they do that how, what kinds of mechanisms do they use. The other kind of mode that I've re uh, referred to, and I think where we see the most um, the most heat coming from for the NGO law, is really for human rights groups, land rights groups, organisations, unions, environmental NGOs, you know, organisations that look at highly politicised and, and um, tense 
issue you know buttons for the government which are you know illegal logging is an example these rights based organizations uh, for example those who talk about corruption who name name names uh, try to link uh, political interests uh, they they very clearly clash with the state agenda and state interests they're not implement they're not implement jointly imp implementing uh, governance uh, policies that the government is is interested in. They're directly questioning and challenging, um, uh, you know, and demanding the rights that they feel should be given to them by the Cambodian Constitution. So these are some of the different um, uh, modes that I think are operating. It's a complex landscape where civil society is engaging with the state for influence uh, in norm advocacy. And I think particularly in the realm of policy networks in the middle one, in the middle kind of mode that I'm interested in, uh, there's, I think there's a lot less good quality um, research written about how if organisations choose to remain to work in, in countries that are declining into you know, an authoritarian state. I mean, if you read Human Rights Watch's uh, reports, you will see they constantly demand donors, international donors, Australian government, you know, the US government, they don't mention them individually, but that's who they're directed at, that they, that they need to do more to pressure um, countries like Cambodia to, uh, to face up to the contradiction in, the, in their the legal you know, rights that are enshrined in the constitution and what's actually happening on the ground. But, if, but for those organisations who want to remain and work in that space, how do they, how do they deal with these contradictions? And what do they, how do they continue to try and uh, push and influence state actors? This is, you know, I guess, what I'm, I'm trying to get at. Um, so to conclude, um, in my, hopefully in the next year or two, I could come back and in that box, there will be a picture of my book, <laughs> book cover. Um, yeah, I hope that the current research directions that I'm, I'm going in are really interested in looking at those strategies that uh, I believe are there, that we need to access more with, with uh, research methods that can target and, and we can see their practice. Can norm advocacy be advanced under certain conditions? Uh, does this mean that we are going to see some less pol obviously political norms, like for example around child rights, easier to implement uh, than others? And, and what do the states and donors do with that? What are the political implications of new practices for donors and implementing partners? Um, I'm interested at the moment really in looking at some of Gary Rodin's new research on modes of participation that he published last year, uh, which disaggregates um, different state, uh, the way that the state disaggregates and, and tries to control how citizens uh, both collectively and individually uh, engage with um, in this space and how they and how they manage that uh, and I'm also really interested in using practice theory and the so which I think can access uh, through looking at practice the actual doings or the, the activities of NGOs to access what's going on in that space uh, so I'm looking there at the work of um, Anderson in 2015 uh, who has written on the work of NGOs and their importance for IR theory. So that's something that I'm exploring at the moment. Um, but in sum, I think those, those kind of theoretical or conceptual approaches that I'm looking at um, 
are really trying to uh, think about civil society relations with the state in a, in a relational way in, and using a relational ontology. Uh, uh, and so it promotes, uh, I think, an ontology that can be applied to the empirical examples of the doings, you know, the actual activities and practice of civil society actors in order to highlight these points in theory. So that's sort of the current directions of that I'm exploring at the moment, and if you do have any suggestions um, on that direction, um, I would um, be delighted to, to hear them. So I think I've, um, I've said enough, and uh, I'll just leave it there. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. Okay, questions? Sounds like authoritarians are getting very clever or smart, <laughs> one might say. Um, just, uh, just an observation. As I mentioned, the, the Indian government's been doing a lot of this. And in India, um, one of the things the NGOs have been able to do is take it to the courts. But I presume that's not uh, so readily available in Cambodia. So what, what are their options? What, what kind of strategies have they pursued to get a little pushback or to try to get the decisions overturned? Yeah, well, I, I think... <coughs> I think you're, well, the first part of your point is yes, um, under the, uh, and, and, and Lucy's written, uh, written her PhD on, on this area in terms of um, uh, Cambodia's um, rule of law and, and the legal system, you know, common law versus civil law. And I think, yes, uh, there's a lot written in the literature on uh, the judicial system and the, uh, the challenges of uh, judicial independence in Cambodia. So. I think it's very it's very varied depending on particular crime types and and who is perpetrating the crime and who brings who brings the um, the matter to court. Do they have funds to bring the matter to court? So there's a whole range of just in in terms of your first part of your question. There's a whole range of um, questions and difficulties around access to justice for. <coughs> For citizens in Cambodia, and where you are in the system, and your your access to resources is predominantly, you know, is going to be a big factor in that. So, my this is, yeah, your. I hope to answer that question in far more detail. But my my sense is at the moment is, you know, if you look at different modes and different mechanisms that the NGO sector is using. I mean, some, I think um, some of the some of the um, the groups that I mentioned are more targeted by uh, the government and the NGO law, like land rights groups, labour unions, and so forth. Um, they do have; they seem to have a very good knowledge of the fine line that they that they cross, that the fine line that they tread between going over the line and staying within the line. So it's actually quite interesting. In preparation for this uh, seminar, I was I was looking at. Um, a recent um, uh, like international petition that a number of international uh, local Cambodian NGOs have signed about um, impunity against journalists, and so you know they are they are willing and they are taking action and criticising the government in certain spaces. But then there are other areas. Uh, there's an examples of a number of activists that have uh, you know disappeared, uh, been killed in you know accidents or you know a shooting uh, and those those matters are not subsequently you know according to certainly uh, human rights groups are not adequately investigated so yeah i think you can find you can find a range of different strategies and mechanisms um, and and also i think uh, there's a number of 
uh, organisations where civil society collectively, their membership groups, and their um, their locations where uh, like-minded civil society groups can they meet regularly, they have a charter, they can gain I think informal uh, informal support and, and some degree of power around how they manage their relationship with the state. But there's no doubt that it is, it's very clear that. Um, particularly for Cam local Cambodian uh, activists. They have, they're, they're walking a very fine line, and there's examples of, of people who have paid a very high price for that. Thanks, Melissa. Great to have you here. Um, I'll just sneak in three um, short questions. <laughs> um, do we know anything about um, whether the, the NGO law that Cambodia implemented was simply Cambodia following in the footsteps or the direction of another state. Um, and do we know anything more about what ministry or individuals were the architects of that law? You mentioned the Ministry of Interior a lot, so obviously a lot of security framing. Um, were the Ministry of Justice involved in any way? And the third question, um, are there any early, is there any early evidence of the Cambodian state now occupying the space of where some of these NGOs may have dominated, um, assuming that some NGOs have been able, unable to register under the new law and have perhaps pulled out of Cambodia? Um, <clears throat> no, I, I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen, in, ter in terms of the first one, I haven't seen any, any reference or any serious kind of analysis about another state being involved. I mean, I think the from the early 2000s there were internal discussions in the media about the government wanting to enact an NGO law. Um, yeah, so I don't, I don't have any, I haven't seen anything around that. I don't know if, if you have. No, but I haven't either. <laughs> no, I mean, there's no evidence of that, um, and I've not heard it anecdotally. Uh, it, look, it makes sense if you look at other, if you look at other jurisdictions around. As I said, East Asia, there are varying forms of control of civil society. It's not unusual. So, uh, but I think the difficulty and the kind of interesting story of the journey of this law was that you know it was always going to be difficult amongst in a space that was so um, given so much freedom. And I think for those of us who've done research in Cambodia, will know it's it's you know particularly up until recently, it, it, it has been a very unregulated space. I mean, you couldn't go and do the kind of things that you might have done in Cambodia as a researcher in Vietnam or Laos or something like that because, um, you know, it's much more tightly controlled. Uh, so I think, you know, it was always going to be difficult for... It was always going to be um, contested, I think, because of that. Uh, the, I, the Ministry of Interior, I think, has been very significant. I'm not. I don't know. I don't know any of the internal workings of whether or not justice was involved. I mean, hard to know. Exactly. Yes. Um, but with uh, with further interviews, that might be something that I could access. Um, evidence of occupying spaces. Yeah. I'm not. No. I. I I'm not. Um, Entirely, don't really have a detailed sort of response to that. I mean, there's there's some of the previous re research work that I've done around NGO partnerships and law enforcement with civil society in Cambodia um, have found some um, interesting activities of the NGOs. I think where they, you know, talking about 
working um, beyond scope. It, it, you know, there's some example in child protection and child exploitation, for example, of NGOs that were working, were virtually doing police work. You know, they were doing surveillance of, um, you know, travelling sex offenders or whatever. And while you might believe, while we might, I think at some, you know, ethical or moral level feel that that is good work, and, and part of me, I think, does believe that, but nevertheless, the question arises is what's the sustainability around, you know, civil society actors doing the work that police should be doing. But then the question is, why don't they do it? And if they withdraw, who will do that work? So I'm not, I'm not sure if that's... I know that's not exactly what you were getting at, but I think that question about occupying space is a really central one that, you know, I hope to get to a bit more. Um, and it requires more time and more funding, so, yeah. Before I came to Australia, I, I had the opportunity to interview about 40 representatives uh, from community-based organizations. And I, as part of the research project, so I, I asked them about uh, complying with the registration requirement. And it's pretty surprising for me that not everyone is actually against mm. the, the, the requirement. Yeah. And most of them, most of them actually like the idea of registration. Mm. So they are willing to do so because it helps to uh, it helps increase their visibility. It helps them to engage better with the government. So in a sense, they, they see themselves as uh, working with the government rather than challenging the government. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what do you think? About yeah. That? No, I think I thank you for that comment. I think it's you know it's a kind of accessing the kind of, you know, material and views that I've, I've suggested in the, my talk that we need to know about. Um, and, um, you know, I've, I kind of alluded to the fact that um, there, there, are, there are, I think, cases in which registration and have, for the government to have a better, better awareness of what organisations exist, what they're working on, um, it could be, you know, quite useful. And one example, one example, I think, which has been picked up in the literature in the past, more in donor coordination, has been, you know, a, a lack of donor coordination and a lack of a lack of awareness about which groups are doing what and where they're doing it. So, you know, I don't disagree with you on that. Um, I think, I think, perhaps the concern is really raised about the the way in which. The, uh, the vagarities of the law can be applied to organisations that um, feel, I mean, and this is not my, my necessarily my, per my, it's my personal view, but it's the view of, you know, if you, if you look at activists and local Cambodian activists, these are people, you know, they're not international NGOs, they're, these are Cambodian people working in their country for what they feel is their rights, and they are unhappy and not entirely, um, you know, they're expressing concern about how it's used. So I think the, you know, they're different parts of the debate. Yeah. Two? Uh, yeah. uh, thanks for the talk. That's very fascinating. Um, I just have a question on the role of law and all these new modes of regulation and the popular forms of social conflicts in Cambodia. And with that, I'm thinking of um, highly contentious issues like land and labor, which of you also referred to in your yeah. talk. 
um, because you refer to Gary Road and then mm. the, the board of school, yeah. the mode of participation framework, I was thinking whether all these laws represent a kind of um, a shift from containment of social conflicts from the public into the um, space of the state. And um, does that represent a new kind of containment of social conflicts from the violent most yeah. 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 Look, I think I think I think certainly the the role of law in this context can be used um, as a non-violent form of compliance and and political action, if if used uh, in that way. You know, I think it, the scope for it to be used uh, against um, opposition. Uh, it, Civil, civil activists that are uh, perceived to be, um, you know, breaking the law, then clearly it can be used depending on, you know, depending on political will and prosecutorial direction or discretion. It can be used, and and it is a non-violent form of um, action. So yes, I think that's it's, but that's not new. I mean, we've seen that for some time. I think in Cambodia with the the role of legislation doing that, and trade union law and telecommunications law and defamation law, which um, Steve has written on with another colleague. And that's, you know, we see that in other countries in the region, in Singapore, for example, the use of defamation. So, uh, yeah, I think I think that's something I'm going to explore. I'm really interested in the way that um, Gary Rodin's work, you know, um, separate, it, it uh, liberates us to, an ex to, I think, from the transition paradigm and helps us look at how both one state authoritarian democratic states, how different states in Southeast Asia are managing uh, modes of participation. I think that's, you know, very attractive to me. So that's one of the reasons that I'm interested in it. So um, are you applying it in your work? No, I'm, I'm just familiar. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Melissa. I have two, related, two questions, I think they're related. I hope they're related. Um, firstly, going back to right back at the beginning, how does the government define what the pool of organisations is which are liable to register? I mean, some of them would be obvious. Uh, a farmer's organisation would, would seem obviously to fall in that category. What about something like the Catholic Church? What about something like a sporting organisation? Does the government give any idea of where the boundary lies between the organisations which are required to register and those which are not? And secondly, have there been any cases that you're aware of where organisations have sought to register but been rejected? And if so, why? What happens to them? Do, we, does the, do you automatically get accepted for registration if you apply, or is, it, is, it, is there a genuine evaluation done? I think on the latter one, um, I've, some, in some respects, um, I'm relying, I've been reliant on media reports and, you know, sort of commentary. Uh, I've heard of examples where uh, organisations have have applied, but then they've been rejected because they don't have the requisite um, documentation or you know whatever those the specific sort of administrative requirements um, which are in the law. And that could be around you know for example you have to provide a statute or you have to provide rather a, a statement of mission and uh, uh, you know photographs and have a have a location and an address so whether or not it's a, it's also a matter of that you know they're 
they're resourcing or that they don't fill that category. But I'm not, you know, I think that's, yeah, I don't know completely. Uh, the first one, that it's, a, it's a good question. I think, um, yeah, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I don't think in, the legislation itself doesn't specifically reference that. Um, so I think it would be in ministerial directions. So, yeah, uh, that's, yeah, I'm not entirely sure about that. And the, these kind, the, the, the implementation of it, the, de the detail is an area that, you know, we could definitely do more research on. This question is related to Collins in a sense. To what degree does the state engage in a, a state corporatist policy? Do they have organizations which they themselves form and which you do not allow other competing organizations to be with? Perhaps labor unions uh, or you know, farmers association would be a very good example of that. Mm. Yes, the farmers need an association, but the government would want to control them. Mm. Well, I mean, I think one of the one of the one of the useful, I think, historical recent historical factors that relate to this is it goes to my point about when you think about the landscape of of civil society space in Cambodia in the early nineties uh, onwards, uh, there was obviously local groups and you know, farmers' organisations and, you know, Buddhist organisations. But there was such an expansion and such an in, in, injection of international donor money that, you know, the, the space expanded so much and got so involved in different... In, uh, implementing in health and, you know, education and different sectors that um, I think for, for, for many years at least, up until... Uh, maybe recently and still ongoing in some sectors, that those international donors and, and international, some civil society actors are heavily involved in implementing uh, parts of state policy. So, you know, I, I don't... I haven't seen that kind of behavioural thinking. I mean, it's something that I will think more about. But um, it's actually, to I think, to some extent, been the opposite, that, you know, civil society was really... Um, entering a space that was very, um, you know, uh, there was so much need in those in the in the 90s and 2000s in in you know rebuilding infrastructure and the, just the state of to, you know develop the development sector and in the common areas that we might see civil society working, and also because of the uh, the project by the UN to re-establish rule of law or to establish rule of law, rather, and democratic elections, there was a real emphasis on rights organisations uh, and educating people on their rights and so forth. So um, I, don't, I don't think the state was that interested in that in the early days, from what, from what I can understand. But, um, yeah, where it's going now, I, I think that could be an area that I, I can explore. Yeah. just want to... Part of the law is in place. Uh, are there any cases brought to court? And in, re in relation to that, um, what's the reaction from the law society, particularly the lawyers, the rights lo uh, lawyers? Mm. So, as far as I can see, the, there was there was one one case where well, there's quite a lot of references in in uh, the media to by state officials, uh, including the Prime Minister at times, on threatening to use the law. So there's a lot of, lot of um, ways in which it's invoked 
in 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 uh, in a way that you know it'll be used to say the. Uh, uh, officials might say, well, you know, if, if organisations do X, Y and Z, they will be in breach of the law. So a lot of um, uh, declaratory use of the potential crim criminal activity, and I think that's what I saw in my review far more than actual cases. Um, so I, I haven't seen cases, from what I've, the research I found up until this was published, but I mean, obviously recently... Uh, may, there may have been cases, but it's not so much about cases brought to court, it's about the invoking deregistration. So it's more on the administrative side, which the Ministry of Interior then has the power to deregulate, or uh, removal criteria. So it's, you know, I suppose it's in the, admi it's in the administration of the regulatory environment, uh, regulatory requirements that we see more of the implementation or the, the action at the moment. From what I can tell, yeah. But and the law society, uh, or lawyers, definitely. There's a lot of there. You know, there had there was extensive um, discussion throughout the five-year consultation period, and, and I think it was very well socialised. Really, that um, I think I don't know whether by accident or do, by design by the by the ruling party. But I mean, really, it would have. Uh, you know the the 2013 elections and the and the political crisis after that did delay the law. I think to, you know well, I think there's an argument to suggest that. So um, uh, you know, but if you look at the the review of the, of reports and international commentary and local you know actual Cambodian media from 2011 to 2015, there were constant, uh, frequent criticisms by both local and international actors, including human rights lawyers, including from legal groups, uh, invoking and referencing international human rights law, uh, the constitution. Uh, so all of these arguments were aired, um, you know, to no, to no avail in, that, in the sense that it didn't influence the legislation in the way they would have liked in the terminology. Thanks for that. Um, I read the paper a few times. I'm pretty well versed in it. I did have a question about more about the talk that you gave mm. in terms of how you framed it. Mm. Um, and I think it's really important for your question up there. It's a great research question because it's barely any literature out mm. there on it. See, on the one hand, uh, on the one hand, you sort of talk about this efficient. We suggest that there's a, a bureaucracy acting in a you know, in a legal, rational tradition that's use, using this law to better coordinate between NGOs and there's policies of mutual concern and they get a better census of NGOs. Uh, and then you, you quoted the Ministry of Justice, which I'm a massive fan of. Fan of. So on the one hand, you, you have this like legal, rational view of the bureaucracy and how it operates. And then on the other hand, you've got this you talked about, you know, declining democratic space, arbitrary application of the rule of law, and I'm wondering how you square these two things together. Mm. And I think that's important for this question, because for me this question is only worth answering if you look or if you study NGOs that are concerned with democracy and political rights. Mm. And, I'm, and I pick my words carefully, political rights, not human rights. Because as far as I can tell, the regime is concerned with using this law as a blunt stick against any NGO 
that is advocating for democracy and more freedom and political rights. Mm. I think the regime wants NGOs to continue operating in relation to trafficking, mm. all, all issues that are sensitive but uh, not a threat to it. Mm, mm. And I'm wondering, so is there a point, should you only be looking at the sensitive mm, mm. NGOs? No, well look, I think, I think partly, yeah, look, I think that's a good question. Um, I think it would be wrong and sort of um, not very useful to look at either of those in isolation. I mean, my idea is to look at different different modes in which the state is functioning. Like, if you're interested in looking at the way authoritarian states behave, why just focus on one area? You know, I th and I, I think there's so many interesting ways in which local groups and international organisations who are interested in norm advocacy do it in different ways that where they don't get the stick beaten over their head because they and particularly low you know particularly command nationals because they don't they can't operate like that so they need to utilize different strategies so why isn't that worth looking at that's you know that's the kind of area alongside of what you're talking about which actually is the most what the literature covers that the most it covers other ways of working less so I think it's a really, it, it's a good, um, yeah, it's a, it's a really good question to help me think about how I present it and why it's useful and why it's important. I, I actually think increasingly, you know, when you look at questions for donors and governments like Australia or uh, people who want to work in, in countries that are you know, have declining democratic conditions. You know, what they are conflicted. I think they will be increasingly conflicted. What do you, you know, what do you what do? How do you work in, how do you work in spaces where the political environment is, is not transparent, is perhaps not as free as you would like? Does it mean you abandon other spaces to, to uh, advance that, to advance certain, you know, uh, agendas which may be important to you morally and ethically. So, you know, it's a it's a conundrum that I think can be related to the policy space, but it's also, you know, for, for I mean, because I've done some work on people that work in child exploitation and child rights. You know, it's 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 they don't have time. They don't see they see the space to work in that as you know when you see the kind of terrible abuses that go on, that, you know, they feel that it's necessary for them to work in that space now, and if they have to work with the, with the state, then so be it. So I think, yes, I'll think more carefully about how I, I can frame it, but I, I really do feel it's, it's not only, um, it's not only the, the, the political and uh, human rights space that we need to look at. And, and we can access, I, I think, too methodologically, we can access them with different sources. Um, it's easier, um, certainly for ethical clearance, to to talk to those organisations that are not in the, uh, you know, having this, as you call it, the stick sort of hit over their head. I mean, in, in terms of university ethics committees, it's a lot harder now to to get to get that. So we do have to, as researchers, I think we have to be more creative in the sources that we use. And, and um, you know, in the future, I also hope to do a lot more um, co-authoring with, with um, 
with Cambodian people, uh, Cambodian scholars, so that um, there's a, you know, there's a, um, I think there's a, an important kind of um, partnership and collaboration to be done around these questions. Yeah, yeah. Last question. Oh, thanks, David. Um, just spinning off this, um, this conversation, and I'll preface this by saying I, I know virtually nothing about it. Cambodian states and society relations. Um, but I wonder, is there a kind of um, an element of politics that could be explored further in the problem that you set up, and that's sort of the, the intra-NGO sector politics? Yeah. Are there you know, mm. factions emerging as a way of kind of policing that space to avoid the scrutiny of the state? Is there, are there um, strong forms of solidarity and coalition building domestically across different elements of the sector, but also transnational and so on. And does that, would that help to kind of open up the lines of inquiry? Yeah, I think that would actually. I mean, some of those things I've kind of thought of informally, but I, I, I think it would be useful for me to develop them more um, clearly. I, I mentioned, I think, in, re in response to an earlier question, that there are... There are um, a number of at least two major ones that I know of of, of sort of um, umbrella groups that that organisations can be part of, and I think through that they also have international links um, and and funding to to um, you know collectively gather and uh, and pursue their mission, which helps support NGOs and civil society groups. Uh, and I, I agree with you that there certainly is intra-NGO politics, and I think one of the one of the tasks for me, I think, in the in the next in the project, is going to be to sort of categorise, to the extent that's analytically useful, to categorise the way that 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 you know maybe organisations collectively gather. You know, there may be. I have a hunch that there's you know there's a gathering of of groups that do that are doing a lot of work in. Education, um, you know, in, uh, governance and implementation of like poverty, maternal child health, which is not overly political. And then, you know, what do the what do the groups which are under far more scrutiny? What are they doing? I mean, so, and in terms of transnational links, um, yeah, one one example that I've sort of already just briefly mentioned was the um, a recent statement that um, that I mentioned about. Um, uh, uh, civil society organisations uh, signing a, a, a sort of a, a statement on the international day to end impunity for crimes against journalists, and uh, many of the many of the organisations are local Cambodian ones, but many of them are international. So I think that's one. That's just one small example where those at times those trans transnational links may be, um, you know, uh, leveraged. So, you know, how, yeah, I'll, I'll try and think about how I can weave, to what extent I can weave that in and, and how, you know, how if, if it's analytically useful. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, that's it for today. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you. Good luck. Thanks very much.